Well, for a while now, if you've been with us on a regular basis, you realize we've been expounding Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. The subtitle of this expositional series is Living Today in Light of Tomorrow. Because in the eyes of the Apostle Paul and the rest of the New Testament, tomorrow is coming certainly and surely in God's own time, but it is coming. And we need to live now in light of those truths. And once again today, we're going to find Paul alluding to and referencing that. And before he's through, he's going to even say a lot more specifically and a lot of details about the second coming of the Lord. But more recently, Paul has been trying to encourage the fledgling new Christians in Thessalonica that he planted that church and then got run out of town. And he was concerned that they might be giving in to the affliction and the oppression and the persecution. And he wanted to get there to encourage them, but he hadn't been able to. And it was frustrating to him. He had great affection for them, great love for them. And he also knew they, as well as he, we're continuing to be in the midst of trials and afflictions. And we looked at that thought last week in the first part, end of chapter 2, and the first six, five verses of chapter 3. We pick up the scripture reading now as we continue at verse 6 of chapter 3 through verse 13. And that brings a break to the section, and then Paul takes up on other subjects beginning next week or in the weeks to come. Hear now the word of the Lord from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 13. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, and if you are standing fast in the Lord, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. The grass withers, flower fades, but the word of our God will remain forever. Let's ask his blessing on it. Father, once again, we know that only in your light can we see light we know that unless you send the third person of the Trinity, your Holy Spirit was poured out in Pentecost and continues to be poured out into our hearts. 
Lord, they can only then overflow with love and can only overflow with faith and can only understand the truth that you speak to us and the gospel that we can believe in order to be saved. Father, will you do your work through your spirit? Will you cause, Lord, us to see Jesus and you, Father, and the Holy Spirit more clearly today? Triune, Father, Son, and and Holy Spirit, we praise you, and we ask for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever heard the expression, get a life? Has anybody ever told you that? <laughs> Come on, get a life. Perhaps some of us have had that said to us at some point. It's, of course, get a life is a slang expression for what? We say to someone who's wasting or or using their time in a way that is not worthwhile. In other words, whatever they're doing is utterly detracting from real living. And thus, calling upon them, challenging them to find a real life. Something with significance. Something that matters. Something even more Today, in Paul's mind, something that echoes in eternity. Something that will last forever. Be involved in. Be about that kind of thing. That makes a life of significance. No doubt, though, back in his day and still many in our day, think somebody like the Apostle Paul was a fool. That he was wasting his life. After all, he had all these incredible credentials. He had all the, went up to all the right schools. He had a p- position and power and influence. And he threw it all away to follow a carpenter's son from Galilee that had been crucified. And yet, if we knew and experienced what Paul had, we would understand why Paul thought he had found the real secret of life in that carpenter's son from Galilee that was now his Lord Jesus, the Christ, the promised, anointed one of God. Listen to this quote by G.K. Beale. Paul's perspective is opposite of ancient and modern unbelieving hedonists who say, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Now, if this is all there is, that that makes sense. That's what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, look, if Christ is not raised from the dead, hey, let's, let's follow the Epicureans. Let's go eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die. This is it. Only go around once. But Paul knew that wasn't it. He knew there was more. He knew that Christ was alive and he knew that Christ was coming back. And he said, that should change how we live now and every day of our lives in light of that. Paul's understanding of fulfilling life was poles apart from that selfish me first sentiment that is expressed in those famous words. Today, we're going to consider this text using three headings. And no, 
There's no perfect alliteration. They don't all begin with the same letter, but there's sort of some in-between alliteration in each one of them. Here they are, the headings we're going to consider. First of all, we're going to look at Timothy's report, his reassuring report. Then we're going to look at the Thessalonians and Paul's, their cheering connection. And then we're going to look at Paul's pastoral prayer. That's going to be the three things we're going to consider this morning. Let's start with Timothy's reassuring report. As recorded in Acts chapter 18, verse 5. If you were to go over there, and what is that? That's the history that shows Paul's second missionary journey. For all missionary journeys, as a matter of fact. But on his second missionary journey, Paul, having gone to Athens, ultimately ends up in Corinth. And that's where he is writing this letter to the Thessalonians. And as he is doing that, probably, finally, Timothy gets back. Timothy finally comes back from having gone. Since Paul couldn't get there, he sent Timothy. And now Timothy has returned at last with his report. And the report that Timothy gave Paul was incredible good news. It's literally in the text called good news. That's the only time the word for the gospel is used to say just general good news in the New Testament. He's saying, I've got incredible good news that came to me about you through Timothy. He found out much to his delight that though he was so concerned about the Thessalonians and how they were doing, whether they were crumbling under the pressure and under the afflictions. But instead, he found out from Timothy they were doing very well. This positive report from Timothy was like to Paul's ears, hearing the sweetness of the gospel. It's the best of news that Paul could have heard. And so he says so in verses 6 and 7. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, And reported that you have always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. In particular... What was it that left Paul so elevated, so euphoric, so giddy with delight over this report from Timothy? Was it the fact that they were so glad? It says so right there in the text. They were so glad to to hear from Paul. They were just as anxious to be with Paul as Paul was anxious to be with them. And that's a lot of anxiety. Is that why? That was true, but no. That's not what got Paul going bonkers with delight here. Dancing a jig. That wasn't what got to him. What excited him was to be glad to know that they were walking in faith and love. He said, when I heard about your faith and love for each other and how strong it was and for me. You couldn't have pleased Paul more than with that kind of report. Now think about that for a moment. 
Those two virtues, faith and love, that are specifically mentioned in verse 6, that's the things that Timothy particularly reported back that they were strong in and doing well in. Those, that are two of the three historic Christian virtues that we sometimes call the Pauline triad. Three things. What are they? They're in 1 Corinthians 13. Faith, hope, and love. Now, hope's not mentioned here, but it is in the verses previous, and it is at the ones at the end of the chapter. So that's in the mix. But here, these two are singled out. And that's what was exciting Paul. That's what had him so delighted that that's where they were. You see, what Paul wanted to see in the churches that he planted were churches that were churches of faith and hope and love. And particularly here, he signals out faith and love. He's addressed hope, and he continues to do that throughout the whole of this book. And one of the strongest expressions of Paul's ministry goals, if you want to know what were Paul's goals in ministry, what kind of churches did he want to establish, if you want to see a very quick and simple summary, look at Galatians 5, 6, which says this. For in Christ is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision that counts for anything. It's not whether you're this or whether you're that, and you go down the list. Do the contrast and compare. None of that matters as much as the second part of that verse, but only faith working through love. Only faith expressing itself, working its way out, Getting feet for love. That is what makes Paul excited. He knows he has a strong church when he sees the evidence of those things. My friends, it's not an easy metric to measure. We like to do that in a lot of things we can measure things very easily. It's, this one's not very easy to measure But the active presence of faith, hope, and love in a church is one of the clearest indices of how healthy it is or how sick it is. If it's absent, no matter what else is going on, it may be doctrinally a straight arrow, but it may be very unhealthy. Because Paul said, remember, these three are the greatest things. Now, good doctrine underscores all of these. They're not in, in antithesis. They're not in contradiction of one another. I'm just saying that what Paul wanted to see is when he sees people believing God's word and trusting God, when he sees people hoping in him and not giving up on each other, and when he sees people loving one another sacrificially with an eye towards others, that is a church that Paul is pleased to say. Wow, Lord, thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for planning a healthy church. Now, secondly, let's look at their cheering connection, verses 8 through 10. Timothy's report had come to Paul when Paul himself was feeling discouraged. You believe that? 
He was. Paul himself had encountered difficult circumstances and his spiritual batteries were running low. He almost didn't feel like himself. Let's be honest. We tend to think of the Apostle Paul as the man of steel, don't we? We think, man, the great Apostle Paul, you know, he, he rushed into trouble and tried and was afraid of nothing. And he was. Amazingly, God gave him great boldness. But you know, Paul was subject, just like you and me, to discouragement. Sometimes Paul probably didn't believe what people said, even when they were trying to encourage him. Or maybe he didn't hear it because they assumed he knew it. That happens a lot in the body of Christ. Oh, I'm not going to say he knows. He knows yet. He knows what a blessing is. I'm not going to go up telling that. He knows that or she knows that. But Paul was discouraged. And yet, in those moments of doubt, we need words of encouragement. You know, we say, and especially in this 500th anniversary year, and there's going to be a lot we're going to be doing about this this fall in Sunday school and in a series, the 500th anniversary of, not 5, 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, we're going to be talking a lot about some of those great truths of the, of the gospel that we are saved by grace through faith alone. And that's true, and praise God it is. But you know what? We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but we're not meant to live alone. We need each other badly. And even when a lot of times you say, well, we're together, but you can be together and still be totally isolated. And you know what I'm talking about. You know it's true. If you're not sharing with your life, And sharing in each other's lives and talking to each other and trusting one another. If you don't have someone that you can be real with, you're not going to be growing in faith, hope, and love. You're missing out on a tremendous opportunity. And Paul was willing to be transparent about his doubts and his anxieties and his uncertainties and his fears. He says, look, I'm afraid the Thessalonians are going to get swept off the map. I'm afraid there's not going to be a church when I get back there. And yet he got this encouragement. It was just, you see, that message from Timothy encouraged them. He sent Timothy to encourage them, and it did. But then they, in turn, sent back Timothy to encourage Paul. And it rocked his world. It snapped. It woke him up, as it were. They encouraged him. That's the cheering connection we all need. That's what it's talking about. That connection with others in the body of Christ, sharing life on life with one another, being open to one another, being willing to even confront one another sometime, coming alongside and encouraging one another. And when one another falls, not to look at them or gossip about them, but to reach down and pick them up and say, come on, brother, we're not home yet. Come on, sister, there's a long way to go, and you're not, I'm not letting you stop here. We're going together. We're linking arms, and we're going together. You see, this models how fellowship and vulnerability are supposed to work in the church. We share our discouragement, and then we encourage one another. 
That's what's supposed to be happening. And it is happening if the church is healthy. And I know it's happening in this place. But there needs to be more of it. We need to encourage one another. Now, look at verses 8 through 10 very specifically for just a moment here. Look at verses 8 through 10. For now we live. If you are standing fast in the Lord, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? And we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Here Paul is telling us what re-energizes him. What re-energizes his life. What makes him come alive. Flipping on the switch of being fully alive. Irenaeus, the early church father, said the glory of God is a human being fully alive. There's a lot of human beings walking around like the walking dead. Some of them in churches. They don't seem to know this kind of animating life. That comes, yes, with suffering and yes, comes with affliction. But leads to a life that really matters. That will echo in eternity. And Paul says this was like something that relit his almost burned out flame. You see, for Paul, what was it? What, the, what, was, it, what was it that made him come alive? It wasn't winning the lottery like so many people think is going to make them come alive. Oh, if I could just win the lottery. Now, you'd still be one of the walking dead in no time. Like everything else that comes from this world, it's just a quick fix and it doesn't last and it never satisfies. It's not winning the lottery or anything like that, but it's being assured that those he loves are continuing and growing in the faith. That's what Paul came alive to. That's what made him saying, man, life is worth living just because he lives. And because he lives, he's making other people come to life. And when I see them walking in faith and growing in love, there's nothing I want under the tree for Christmas than that. That's the greatest gift I can ever have. You see, Paul's joy and fulfillment comes not from obsessing on himself and what he needs and what he wants and deserves, but on others. Where did he learn that? How about Luke 9, 24? Jesus said, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever loses his life, dies to self, takes up his cross, puts self aside, and puts others in the place as Jesus did, that person will be truly alive. It's what Jesus was saying. Do you ever do something outwardly for God? Listen carefully. Do you ever do something outwardly for God that is inwardly motivated by personal gain? Hmm? You ever do that? Yeah, me too. Yeah, more times than you know. God knows. I pray, Lord, 
If it happens, don't let that happen today. It's happened so many times. But if it does, forgive me and still show up today. Make us alive. Make us blaze with your heart, with your love. Help us increase our faith. Give us hope and make us love well. Here's what G.K. Chesterton, got two G.K. quotes today. Did you notice that? Different people. This is Chesterton. Once remarked, how much larger would your life be if yourself could become smaller in it? Now you think about that. How much larger could your life be, become, if yourself got smaller in it? You see, there we go. The upside down nature of the gospel. The way up, down. Humble yourself and in two time God will exalt. Exalt yourself and God will bring you down. That's the way the inverse nature of the gospel. You see, you and I have to decrease. Remember John the Baptist? I must decrease he who Jesus had to increase. You know what's the problem with all of us? Or most all of us? We keep thinking we're going to get a lot better. Newsflash, you're delusional. You're delusional. And so am I. But you know what can happen? You're not going to get a lot better in your flesh and in your own power. But you can get Jesus bigger in your life. Because when you step off the throne, he comes on. When you step down, he steps up and steps in and starts bringing the power of his life into your life. So your hope is not that you'll get better, but that Jesus will grow bigger and bigger. And then you'll start growing in your faith and your hope and your love and keep growing through his power and with his help. There's one other element here in the verses 11 through 13. Let's look at that for just a few moments. Paul's pastoral prayer. Paul's pastoral prayer. You know, we often pray, don't we, for ourselves and our material needs. Now, is that okay? Sure. Where, did we, where are we told that? In the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. That's praying for ourselves, right? And certainly praying for others and for their healing and for, for God to bless them and uh, um, help their son find a job like mine needs to right now. Uh, you, know, th- you know, that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. That's good. I'm not saying that's not part of our prayer life and shouldn't be part of it. But I want to show you something different about the Apostle Paul. You read his prayers throughout all his letters. And you know what you're going to over and over see? Very few organ recitals. God bless Bob's, you know, jam toe. Now, there's nothing too little to pray for. Nothing too little, and you can pray that. 
But Paul has a strategic conscience. He's concerned about the big things and things that matter most. And what you see Paul almost always, exclusively almost, is always praying for not himself, but for others and for spiritual priorities. Lord, I want their eyes to be open so they may understand what they have in Christ. I want you to show them the riches. I want you to show them that it's always the most important things that he's praying for. And Paul does that here. He asks for three things in verses 11 through 13. Look at them. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Now, this is very, very I think, cool to see what Paul is doing here. The first request is, of course, that the way be cleared. Remember, the way had been obstructed by the evil one, Satan. And now he's saying, God, please remove that barrier. I want to get back and see them. He's saying, please. And Paul eventually did, we think. But it was years later when he actually got back there in person in his trip through Macedonia on the third missionary journey. But that's what Paul was asking And yet, I want you to notice something very interesting about the construction as he's praying to the object, the hearer of his prayers. I want you to notice something about that. Notice that God is the object of his prayer, but so is the Lord Jesus. So is Jesus. God the Father is the object of the prayer. It's being addressed to God the Father, but it's also being addressed to God the Son, to Jesus Christ. This is clearly another indication where Paul is underscoring through that language the fact that Jesus is equated with God because he is God. The Father and the Son both receive prayer. Angels don't receive prayer. High created beings don't receive prayer. And praise, Jesus does. The fact that it's highlighted. And then he goes on, very interestingly in the construction here in the original, he goes on to use a singular verb, clear, with a dual plural subject. He uses a plural subject, father and son. Clearing singular verb. In other words, if you were to try to say it out, it would be saying this. He's not praying they. He's praying he. May he, did you hear that? In the text, clear the way. Who's the he? Is it a they? No, it's a he. The Trinity, three in one. One God in three persons. How ironic that on this Trinity Sunday, we should stumble accidentally across a passage here that 
was historically powerful and informative in our doctrine of the Trinity. Pure coincidence, right? Chance. No, (laughs) no, not at all. But you see how it's over and over in many places, these kind of truths are there about our great God. Paul then requests, secondly, that their love might overflow. Now, think about that for just a moment. This echoes who again? Jesus in John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples. If what? You love one another. If you love one another well, people are going to know something's up. God's doing something. Some, that kind of love that sacrifices like that, the world doesn't give that kind of love. World, world knows tit for tat. You be nice to the world, the world be nice to you. But that's not what is the kind of love that's being talked about here. Paul is praying for their love. They were already had a reputation of being a loving people. They already were known for their love, but Paul prayed that they might step it up a notch. He says, I'm not satisfied that you already have a great reputation for being a loving church. He said, I want you to go to the next level. I want you to take the next step. And then don't limit it to one another. That's where we fail often, isn't it? We stop. Oh, we love each other. Isn't this great? We got this great thing going. Let's just keep it to ourselves. What have you heard me say over and over again? If you got the stream running into the pond and it's dammed up at the other end and it's not getting out, it's going to stagnate and become putrid. The fresh life-givingness to it will be gone. You see, Paul says real love spills over natural boundaries. It can't stay inside these walls. It's got to go with you out where you go and you've got to include others. Where's the empty chair in what you're doing? Where's the person who needs to be brought in? Even if they are lost and they are not like us, love does not stay inside if it's real love. And then Paul's third request was for holiness in the 13th verse. Here we are again. What's in view? The future. Paul is saying this in light of something that's going to happen. You ever heard the expression, oh, he's too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. You've heard that, right? Paul says, no way. No way. Not the kind I'm talking about. Not like that. Doesn't work that way. Paul is talking about heavenly minded holiness heavenly minded holiness in other words paul is saying if you really understand what's coming and who's coming and what that means and who's going to be with him all the saints if you really understand that and they're already going to be you better get moving on that journey you want to meet them you want to be growing that direction and they're going to be coming you want to join with them you see paul saw The second coming as a motivation for believers to live a more blameless and holy life, not leading to a careless one. That's already taken care of. Got my fire insurance. Don't need to worry. Just coast on through. Uh -uh. Paul says, if that's what you think, you need to read Hebrews. Whether that was Paul or someone else who wrote it. Pursuing holiness without which no man will see the Lord. 
If you're his, you will be listening to his call and following him. You will be listening to his call to purify yourself. Not that he hasn't already purified you in Christ and your sins are forgiven, but now you want to please the one who for your sake died and rose again. Paul said, if that's not the natural motion, something's wrong. So when he talks about the second coming, Paul says, I can't wait to get there to introduce these folks there. And see, show you how they've grown, how they've matured, how they've become blameless before a watching world in their love and in their faith. Anybody today need a better life? Anybody need a better life? Follow Paul, who followed Jesus, and you'll get there. I want to close with this thought. This is a lyrics from one of my favorite worship songs that I come listening to, usually on Sunday mornings and other times to church to prepare my own heart. It's called Wake Up Sleeper by Zach Hicks. Listen to the lyrics of the first verse. You, meaning God. This is the person, the Christian talking to himself. You summon me up from the death of living. That's where so many people are. They're living, but they're the walking dead. And he says, God, you're calling me. You summon me up from the death of living. A life bent on itself. You hear the selfishness. He's confessing that. A life bent on itself and unforgiving. Resisting peace and truth. Your law defying. Exhausted by my own self-justifying. In my rebellion, you call to raise me up from the fall. And you gather me with your chosen people to lift up my eyes and see the Lord. That's why we're here together to encourage one another. Wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, please help us. Father, I pray that there's anyone in the sound of my voice that is still a stranger to this grace, to this incredible, challenging life that involves affliction and misunderstanding and sometimes frustration and fear. But Lord, thank you that you won't let us go, those that are yours, and you call us you, Lord, you call us to wake up like sleepers and look to Christ, the one who is risen, who is coming again. Lord, will you more and more make us like him, make our way more blameless, make our lives more holy. Lord, make us want to resemble the one who loved us and loosed us from our sins. Increase our faith, increase our hope, increase our love. And then, Lord, help us to share that and offer it to others that they might find a cup, Lord, overflowing with life and health and peace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.